Less alone, more alive. I'm Karen Thurston. I'm Anissa Naishira. I'm Ben Grace. And I'm Flamey Grant. Welcome to Heathen. That's how y'all know we started a podcast. That's right. What would the podcast listeners do if we didn't say hi, heathen, at the beginning? They would probably wonder if they were listening to the right podcast. They probably would. They'd get very confused. Probably also just heard my accent and gone, what is happening? Matthew. Matthew. You sound different. (laughs) What's going on? Welcome, heathens. We have one of our brand new heathen hosts here today. Mm. Who are you? Identify yourself. I'm Ben Grace. I'm an Aussie messing up Americana since 2011. And I've been roped into this whole heathen shenanigans. Oh, yeah. And we really twisted your arm to get you here. (laughs) What a service you're doing for the people. (laughs) So this is our first time, actually, the two of us Mm -hmm. doing an episode together with a guest. We've done episodes together just like you and me. We've recorded podcasts. But this is our first time hosting a guest on Heathen. That's right. It's the first Ben-Karen combination. And we found someone who rhymes and fits right in. So now we've got Ben, Karen, and Aaron today, (laughs) which is a delight. And such a smorgasbord of international accents for y'all today. I I am delighted. And I'm going to try really hard not to have my accent morph as we go along and and be that American (laughs) who like sounds half Irish, half Australian, and somehow also just very confused. Half Californian by the end of it. 150% of me. So we have Erin Burnett is here today with us and she's coming all the way from Scotland, right? Yes. Yes. And where it's evening, which is fun. So we're doing, we're all very confused about what time it is. We've just finished our coffee. Erin, uh, welcome. Thank you so much for having me. I love the podcast. <laughs> we're so glad that you're here and I love your story and I'm so excited to hear more about all of these, all of these wonderful details. But as we always do on Heathen, we're going to ask you to go ahead and introduce yourself to the listeners so that you can just feel really entirely put on the spot. Go right ahead. Uh, my name is Erin Burnett. I am originally from Northern Ireland, which is the Bible Belt of Europe, but I now live in Scotland <laughs> because I'm doing a postgraduate in theology, of all things. Nice. Welcome to Heathen. <laughs> <laughs> do they know? Have you told them that you're doing <laughs> what does that do? I always wonder, because we have a lot of, of theologians and, and uh, Bible scholars who wind up on the Heathen Podcast, and I always wonder what that does for your street cred with your professors. <laughs> so I did my undergraduate in Northern Ireland, but the reason why I ended up going to Scotland for my postgrad is because the theological climate is completely different in the two countries. Scotland really? is extremely liberal to the point that they once had an atheist bishop. That is how theologically liberal Scotland is. I love an atheist bishop with my whole soul. I don't even know how it works, but I'm so excited (laughs) about that as a possibility. That's delightful. Oh my gosh. Okay. Now I'm really excited. I didn't, I didn't know that Northern Ireland was the Bible belt either. Like that's, that's news to me. So fascinating. Is this because of its history with kind of Protestantism and Catholicism kind of colliding in this sort of military kind of way? Yeah, a lot of it is because going back several hundred years, the Scottish Protestants came over and set up camp in Northern Ireland. And for some reason, even though in the subsequent years, Scotland liberalised a lot, for some reason, Northern Ireland managed to cling on to that real hardcore Presbyterianism for a very long time. Wow. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> just decided to keep on clinging. I love it. 
All right. Well, Erin, I know I know a few things about you. Here are the things that I know. I know that you have written a Christian fiction novel for young adults and kids. Is that correct? Yes. <laughs> is it Liza? Is it is it her? Is Li- am I saying Liza right? Yes. Well done. Yes. Beautiful. I'm excited to hear all about this. My number one regret is that the title is so hard to pronounce. <laughs> Do you get like a lot of Lisa? And I, I thought Liza right away. I would just like yeah, to say I'm with you. I'm on the I'm on the wavelength there. Um, okay, so somehow you've gotten from uh, this this upbringing in uh, the Bible Belt of Europe, and then coming into um, writing this novel, and now here you are having gone to pursue a more liberal theology in Scotland. So do you want to just kind of start at the beginning for us and tell us a little bit about who you are and how that happened? Yeah, it's a wild ride. I love it. Mm-hmm. I'm here for it. I'm only 21 and I feel like I have been everywhere possible in the theological spectrum. <laughs> oh, I'm so happy for you though, because like it took me until like 35, 30-ish, 36-ish to get to deconstruction. And my God, the things that you will know by the time you get there, that's incredible. I love it. Okay. Yeah. So start at the beginning. Tell us, tell us where it begins. So I was raised in a fairly like mainline, mainline Christian household. My parents are wonderful people. I feel like they are examples of Christianity done right because it makes them good mm. people and they don't push their views on other people. Yep. Unfortunately, as I got older, I had a pretty terrible time in school because, well, I'm autistic, but I didn't know it at the time. So, you know, I didn't have any friends. It was just very lonely. And as you know, it's when you're down that fundamentalism can be really appealing (laughs) because (laughs) it gives you a tribe, it gives you community. So I decided to read the Bible because in Northern Ireland, this gives you an idea of how Christian it is. Even in state funded schools, everybody is handed a Bible when when you're in first year. So when you're 11, you all all get a Bible from the Gideon Society. Most people never read them. But I did. I read it cover to cover. And again, because of the autism, I took it extremely literally, which is why I Mm -hmm. ended up being a fundamentalist, because they also took it literally. Was it the full text or just the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs Gideons? Just the wee one. Yeah, the Psalms and and New Testament. I I tried, like everyone, I tried the Old Testament and like gave up halfway through Leviticus. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Leviticus is a tough It's amazing how those lists of names are just not riveting at the end of the day. Well, Leviticus is all the codes and the laws. Right. Well, there's that too. Numbers gets into the like, he begat and he begat. Yep. It's it's half the books in there where it's just list upon list upon list. That used to be my biggest dread in Sunday schools when they're like, now go home and read this. I'm like, yay. (laughs) Lists. (laughs) Well, I'm slightly jealous, Erin, because I did grow up fundamentalist where the Old Testament was sort of the emphasis. So I'm at least jealous that your fundamentalism was sort of limited to the New Testament and Psalms and Proverbs. Yeah, our <laughs> emphasis was really the letters of Paul, because like we were very Calvinist. Uh, so we loved the yeah. letter to the Romans and all that. Yeah. Paul and I have been in a fight for the last 10 years. <laughs> <Yep>. <laughs> he doesn't know we're fighting, yeah. but we are. Karen, and it's Karen's going. not speaking to him and he's not speaking back <laughs> either. <laughs> Aaron, before we go any further, Aaron, I know people have different preferences. What do you, how do you prefer to have your autism uh, referred to you? Do you like autistic person, person with autism? What's your preferred? I really don't mind what people say as long as they say it nicely, but I think the, ma- <laughs> the majority tend to prefer autistic person so I'll just I'll go with that 
All right. Beautiful. Okay. So you've, you've now read the Bible. Thank you, public school. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, you, so you fall into this, uh, this sort of fundamentalism because it's in line with sort of the way that your brain naturally processes information. Where did, where'd you go from there? So my parents weren't too happy when I did join this church because they, they had sort of an unfortunate history with the Northern Irish troubles. And, but at the same time, they didn't stop me because, well, <laughs> they were glad I was taking an interest in something. And, you know, sure. there's worse things your teenager could be doing than going to church. <laughs> <laughs> Sunday school. <gasps> toss up. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it won't get you pregnant right away. <laughs> maybe. But... <laughs> so what was it when you, when you got uh, linked in with the, with the fundamentalist church, like where, where, where were the places of comfort for you? Where were the ways where that really connected and felt like home? And then when did the, the dissonance start for you? So, well, I want to make it clear, my problem is not with the people. The people mm. were just kind, lovely people. In fact, I'm still friends with many of them on Facebook and we haven't fallen out despite the fact we now believe very differently. So I love that. I think that speaks well of the type of people they are. Um, so things I found comforting, I think it was very much, you know, an us versus them, you know, us, whether it's us versus the Catholics or us versus yeah. the gays, whatever it was. It is quite comforting to believe that you are right and everyone else is wrong. It, <laughs> you know, in hindsight, I'm like, I didn't become a very nice person. And it did cause mm. a lot of tension, particularly within the family, because of course I began to believe that, well, they're all going to hell, even the Christian ones, because they're not Christian enough. So I was right. I was that annoying person who kept giving everyone tracts and just, I was insufferable. <laughs> do, you, do you all have over there, the um, we have these uh, million dollar tip things that look like a oh. dollar bill and you throw them in like the tip jar. Well, tipping is different in yeah, Europe too than it is Tipping's not, not as much as a, of a thing here. Yeah, I used to work in a coffee shop and we would get this, uh, like, you know, everyone throws in a dollar into the tip jar. And then every once in a while, someone would throw in this million dollar bill that was like, did you know that God is angry with you? And you're going to hell if you don't repent. This is, this is worth more than all of the earthly treasure of the world. And we were like, yeah, actually, no, it's kind of not, though, because (laughs) we wanted the dollar, damn it. Can we have the dollar? The the ones I used were um, chick tracks. Nice. You know, the, the wee comic ones that are pretty horrendous. Mm, yeah. Was it like a friendly illustration about how you were separate from God and needed Jesus to bridge the great divide? Or Yep. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good one. <laughs> Amazing. Falling down the cliff into hell is such a nice image. So you're trying to convert your parents or just other members of your family? Or who are you actively trying to convert? Anyone who'd listen. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> nice. God, I remember that. I miss, honestly, I miss sometimes the comfort of being so sure that I was right. Like, I think there was something. I love questions. I love mysticism now, but there was something so comfortable about being sure and being comfortable in my sureness and surrounded by people who agreed. Yeah. And I, I didn't understand how, if you literally believe hell is real and most people are destined to go there. I didn't understand how you could just have a normal life and why you weren't, you know, screaming on the streets about it 24-7. Like, this is a big deal, guys. 
Yeah, I appreciate that so much because I feel like that's a problem. That's a that's a, a kind of an authenticity problem I have with a lot of super hardcore conservative evangelicals is like if you really think that everyone is dying, why aren't you doing more about it than you are? Like that's a so at least I mean at least you had your integrity. That's why we've got to save them when they're in the womb, Karen. Before you know. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, I forgot. I forgot. Yeah, don't get started on that. I also did like pro-life street protests and things like that. Mm-hmm. Oh, joy, joy, joy. Yeah, yeah, me too. I love it. I love that though. I love the perspective of like if, if there's anything else that I cannot forget in life, it is that people are absolutely capable of change because I have gone from from that one place to the other. So at least we know that. Okay, so you found your people. And you are a full-on tract handing out pro-life in the streets fundamentalist activist at this point, saving the world from hellfire. And then? And then I became a heretic. Oh, dear. <laughs> okay, wait. That so quick. At, that, at what point did you... Really just, that escalated really, really quickly. <laughs> <laughs> At what point in your uh, in your your long long twenty one years of life did you write a novel? When did this happen? Oh yes, yes that that small detail. Um, so when when I was in school. Again, because I had no friends, so I had nothing to do at lunchtime. So I thought, mm. eh, I'll write a book. I like books. So I I wrote a fantasy novel, and I tried to do it almost in the style of C.S. Lewis. In that there was a subtle Christian message, but it wasn't too in your face. And then it, it it got accepted by an American publisher, which is really exciting. Um, yeah. When I was I was sixteen at that point. Wow. Wow. Although, because the publisher was quite evangelical, the book it was it wasn't in your face enough, so they went through and added more overt. Of course. Sermonizing, and in fact, people have said that to me when they read it. They can tell when it jumps from what I wrote to what was added later because it suddenly, wow, it suddenly becomes American. (laughs) (laughs) Suddenly, all the U's disappear from words. Like, what happened here? American Christianity now with more fundamentalist Jesus. They did the same thing uh, to hymns, Aaron. I don't know if you know this. I'm a huge fan of hymns. And I found out that all these gorgeous German hymns that were all about nature and, you know, the beauty of, of kind of the transcendent just, just in natural stuff all around us. When they crossed over to America, they had to just insert all of the Calvinist theology. They had to insert Jesus on the cross. Like all of a sudden it went from these beautiful, you know, pastoral themes to this this. Jesus is dying. I'm just like, wow, why, why is always like every last verse has that? And that was what I found was that Americans basically had kind of come in and decided we needed more of that theology in our hymns. Yeah, Ben. God and the cross and the flag <laughs> and eagles. What more do you need? Guns. Need more guns. And guns. Touche. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy, that's the sad and unfortunate truth. That's wild. So, like, what was that editing? So, did they did they like ask you to make those changes, or did they just kind of go in and and do it for you? So, I am I'm really grateful to these publishers, you know, for seeing potential in a teenager and they were very good and very thorough with their editing and in the editing process you know they just added bits in and I was like yeah fine that looks good go for it I love that that's wild I'm a a writer and I'm not great at being edited so I'm always fascinated like and then what happened and then what did they do (laughs) all right so you've written this book 
And that's out there now, sharing the good news of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ to the world <laughs> and saving them from hell. And then, then you become a heretic. Yes, and a, a long, slow, painful decline. <laughs> so was there a catalyst for you? Was there like a moment or a question or a, something you read or encountered or listened to? What was the thing that kind of started you down this the slippery slope of heresy? It's hard to tell exactly what started it because it was a combination of a whole load of things. I remember actually my English teacher was quite influential because even though he was a Christian, he was more of a progressive type Christian and he was a socialist as well. And Ooh. we were having a de we were having a debate in class and I must have been up there whinging about the welfare state or something like that. And then he said to me, but Aaron, didn't Jesus say we're supposed to love the poor? And I was like, mm. flip, you're right. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, cognitive dissonance. <laughs> um, and, and I did begin to realize that in church, 90% of sermons were on the letters of Paul because Paul is our favorite. Mm. We very rarely actually looked at the teachings of Jesus, particularly, you know, the stuff about loving the poor, not judging, etc. We sort of just ignored that bit. <laughs> and that began to annoy me. <laughs> <laughs> Convenient. And yet. That's funny because I think years ago I found this, uh, someone said we wouldn't have had Christianity without Paul, like because Jesus didn't come here to set up a, a religion. But Paul, on the other hand, was the cornerstone of which we had built all of this theology. Oh, yeah. W without Paul... I honestly doubt Christianity would have been more than a sect of Judaism. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, I think that makes sense. That's probably why Paul and I are still fighting. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So it starts with it starts somewhere along there, and then what does that what does that look like? I know for a lot of uh, for me, I don't know if this is true for you, but for a lot of us, like when you start to question, um, there's a lot of fear and a lot of anxiety that comes around that, and a lot of like tucking back in and reading the Bible more. Did, did you have that experience or were you just kind of like, oh, let me look for this new information? And then how did that manifest in those relationships? It definitely caused immense anxiety when I began to, mm -hmm. to question things. So that was when I was around about 18. And, and you know what it's like, one question leads to another and another and another. So I started doubting Calvinism because it makes God really mean if he's predestining yeah. everyone to burn forever. <laughs> so mean. So I thought, like a good Christian, I know what will solve all my problems. I will go to theological college and then I will be super Christian. <laughs> Famous last words for so many people. <laughs> I love all these people, pastors who go off to seminary to get trained to be pastors and all come back being like, there is no God. <laughs> Oh, all right. Well, this is this is a common uh, it's a, it's a common theoretical solution <laughs> to this problem. Okay, so you go to college. Yeah. So the college I went to at the time I was there, it was part of Queen's University, which is the proper state mm. university in Northern Ireland. In subsequent years, that relationship has been severed because, well, they fell out with each other for a whole range of reasons. But while I was there, I, I still got a proper Queen's University degree. So I am qualified somehow. Congratulations. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, you know, 
And I went in absolutely with the mindset that I wanted to agree with everything. I wanted to strengthen my faith. So I didn't go in with a rebellious mindset at all. It just, there was just so many things that, it was almost like in The Wizard of Oz when you see behind the curtain and that it's just Hmm. a man pulling the strings. I remember church history really disillusioned me because Hmm. the church essentially formed by centuries of really petty theological debates. Like, (laughs) you know, people were burnt at the stake over matters of whether the son proceeds from the father and the, you know, all these really minute things. It all seemed terribly arbitrary. Yeah, and human, so human. Yeah, and interestingly, our church history professor came out in favour of gay marriage and then got fired. Oops. Oh. (laughs) Another heathen for the podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Church history, yeah, that bothered me. Also, systematic theology, again, it seemed... I, I remember once in a lecture being told... You know, the Bible is the word of God because it is self-attesting, which is a fancy way of saying the Bible is the word of God because it says so. And (laughs) I just felt like, you know, for for an academic institution, it almost was as if we were starting at a conclusion and working backwards instead of the Mm -hmm. other way around. (laughs) Isn't that the case? Yeah, I've got a real bone to pick lately, especially with that, the Bible the Bible says it's the holy and complete word of God because it says it's the holy and complete word of God, except that the Bible then isn't even assembled until six, 700 years after these books that are putting it, they're saying this is the complete and total work of God, word of God. Like the the Bible is also somehow prescient and uh, just, I don't know, the whole thing is such a tangle to get into if you start trying to figure it out logically. And why is Judith not in there? Yeah, poor Judith. <laughs> poor Judith. Yeah, and you know, just questions, things like, why is the raising of Lazarus only in the Gospel of John, like a hundred years later? Surely that is a big flipping deal that should be mentioned from the very beginning. Right. <laughs> hey guys, by the way, another guy comes back from the dead, which is sort of a thing, and that's neat. Well, and any, I don't think we accept that from anything else as far as scholarship is concerned. We don't accept this. This thing says it is right so therefore it's right we have to have external proofs and secondary evidence and all of these things like the bible does not hold up in a court case by any stretch of the imagination mm-hmm. you've got one it's its own eyewitness testimony and that's what the whole case is hinging upon right and i think another key part of the story is at that point because i was getting tired of fundamentalism i ended up joining a rather charismatic student group nice mm. So, yeah, from from Calvinism to speaking in tongues. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> How did that feel for you? Like, did you did you have an experience of speaking in tongues? <laughs> That's an interesting story. Um, and it actually, it relates back to autism as well, because um, mm-hmm. peer pressure basically doesn't work on most autistic people. So mm-hmm. even when everyone in the room burst out in tongues, even though I really, really wanted to, I couldn't. Because I just, mm-hmm. it just didn't happen. And that was rather embarrassing. <laughs> but looking back, maybe not so embarrassing after all. <laughs> Good on you, I say. 
Yeah. So you've written a lot. I know about, um, and you know, if I'm steering you off of a course that you were going on, by all means, just keep telling us the stories that you were telling. But you've written a lot about um, autism and atheism and sort of the intersection of different types of Christianity um, and your particular, you know, alignment in the way that in the way that your brain works. And I'd love, I'd love to hear, especially like how your autism factored in in this, in this transition and as you were going from, you know, conservative into charismatic and into wherever you've landed now. So when I was in final year of my undergraduate for my dissertation, I decided to write it about autistic adults in the church. And the reason mm-hmm. why I chose adults is because quite a lot has already been written about children, but not so much. And what happens once those children grow up. So I thought I'd try and fill that gap in the literature. And while I was researching for that, I found some really interesting studies that other universities had done. So there's one from 2012, the University of British Columbia. And they they found that when a lot of autistic people talk about God, they're not necessarily talking about, you know, the old man in the sky or the sort of God you would have a relationship with. It's more just a vague, principle like basically anything that's good okay that's god (laughs) kind of like a john shelby spong way of looking at god if you're familiar with (laughs) with him yeah there was another study from the university of boston in 2011 and they found that on average autistic people were way more likely to be either agnostic or atheist compared to neurotypical people and of course that doesn't mean all autistic people are atheists it just means we're far more likely to be And they found there were various reasons for that. One is that a lot of Christianity depends on having a relationship with God. But Mm -hmm. I mean, autistic people find it hard enough to have a relationship with people they can see, let alone Mm -hmm. an entity I cannot empirically react to. Like, I always wanted a relationship with Jesus. And I was so jealous of the people who, you know, that Jesus spoke to them and all that. And it just, I just couldn't do it, even though I really wanted to. Um, They also found that autistic people don't tend to think teleologically, which means we don't see overarching meaning. So, for example, you know, say I pass an exam, perhaps a Christian would say, oh, God's hand was in that. You know, they would Mm -hmm. see an overarching reason, whereas I would just say, nah, I did the work, I got the grade. That, it's as simple as that. There's, right. There's no, A plus B. <laughs> there's no supernatural intervention required. Hmm. So you have no problem then when people say, well, God rules in the kingdoms of men and God must have put Trump there. You're like, no, Trump was voted in by 81% of white evangelicals in America. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> A and B and So B. you have the advantage is what I'm hearing. <laughs> 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 I love that. I feel like you and I would would have some really really compelling conversations because I feel like I feel like my brain works in the exact opposite mm. orientation where my brain is obsessed with overarching meaning even like to the point where I've tried to I've tried to kill that part of my brain multiple times by uh really just begging it to be an atheist or begging it to 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 stop seeing this massive spiritual pattern that exists mm. over the world and i can't i can't root that part out of me that is the the number one thing that my brain wants to do with information is try to tie it all together and derive some sort of meaning 
so basically, if you would like to just hang out with me all the time, and I feel like somewhere <laughs> in the middle, we will find <laughs> beautiful ballads. Hey, Nisa. Hey, Ben. What's up? What is your baby wearing? Oh, she's wearing her heathen onesie from the heathen habit heathen heathen who named this shit <laughs> heathen haberdashery haberdashery how did okay guys this is, you wanna... this is karen she's just all alliteration, oh, alliteration. all the time yeah. it sounds fun until you're saying hard words but <laughs> if you want your baby to wear a cool onesie or you want an awesome heathen mug sweatshirt uh t-shirt i think all these things are available if you go to heathenpodcast.com Click on merch. Yeah, sounds good. I'm going to get one now. Okay. That's fascinating. And how do you feel like that? Do you feel like all of that information, you know, you've, you've done, you've read these studies. Does that, does that resonate for you? Does it feel resonant with your personal experience across the board? It did. It was, it was really validating to find out, you know, I wasn't the only one. Mm. It explained why, despite my sincerest efforts, I never really felt I had a relationship with God. And even in my current theology, you know, I'm firmly agnostic. I am not saying that there is no God or there is no supernatural. I'm just saying, if it's out there, I don't, I don't feel it. Right. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. just, it's yeah. not how I'm built. But you know, I haven't given up on Christianity entirely. You know, obviously, I'm still doing a theology degree. But Hmm. my current field is practical theology, which is Hmm. faith and practice, how Christianity can be used as a force for good in the world. Because I think Hmm. there's still a lot of potential to it as a cultural force. And I'm still quite happy to call myself a Christian. I still go to church every Sunday, but it's very much an empirical way of life as opposed to a set of supernatural doctrines. Hmm. So faith by works, essentially. <laughs> yep, though. Wow, my first, yep, that's what, exactly what Apostle Paul doesn't like. <laughs> <laughs> it's okay, I like it when we stick it to Paul. It makes me happy. That's beautiful. So when we started this podcast, we spent a lot of time really just delving into people's deconstruction. and What, what are the things that ruined it for you? Um, but I love that you've, I love that you've, you've kept it and you've felt compelled to keep you know, at least this practical aspect of it. What are what are the pieces of that that work for you that are compelling for you, um, just as as a way of living? I I really like the idea of the kingdom of God, in terms that Jesus said, instead of waiting to die and then go and get the kingdom of heaven, why not make heaven on earth? I feel like that's a very practical way to live. You know, don't wait until you die for things to be good. Make things good now. Uh, yeah, of course. I like all of Jesus' teachings about reaching out to those with whom society normally looks down upon. He also wasn't afraid to talk back to the religious authorities. <laughs> <laughs> yep. Yeah, and I'm I'm particularly interested in chaplaincy, which is what my current studies are in. You know, instead of parish ministry, chaplaincy is when you work in an institution, whether it's a prison or a hospital. And it's more about just meeting people where they're at and listening. Mm. You're not preaching at them. You're just meeting them at their level. And 
I feel like that is a very practical way to live out the Christian faith because you're actually going and helping people and not just telling everyone they're going to hell. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I like that. I've, I've always been fascinated by the Old Testament Levites because they lived among the people. Mm-hmm. Like they had they had a specific thing they were doing, which I think was reminding the people that they were, you know, holy and they were God's people and beloved and children of God. But they were just there shoulder to shoulder as people were, uh, and our co-host is now on the ceiling. Yeah, Matthew's on the right roof. Above us. <laughs> <laughs> now part of the conversation. But they were, they were just shoulder to shoulder with people reminding them who they were and partnering with them in that in that work and i think you know i've i grew up in a faith where you didn't weren't allowed to sort of work professionally for the church it had to be sort of lay ministry and then i moved to america and then started a church here um and had that whole experience and i sort of firmly have landed this place of just like i think this idea of a professional christian is is a problematic one you know um it it doesn't mean you shouldn't earn a crust for what you do but I think when you're siloed off in your little communities, you know, um, there, there's a lot of things that go wrong with that particular model. And I, I feel like that that whole one of the big problems with that, though, is if your faith is contingent upon you maintaining your belief in the supernatural and your faith yeah. in the supernatural. And if that wavers, you know, then that shatters the whole institution comes crumbling down. And that's that I don't think that that relationship with Jesus model is really practical and maintainable for anybody lifelong. I think everyone that I've ever talked to around faith has at least had an ebb and flow of their ability to, you know, feel or discern their relationship with with Jesus. So what I love, Aaron, about what you're saying is just this this rooting in these practical, work-oriented, active, like these are axioms. These are, are ways of living and, and solid things that I can hold on to. It isn't a big, you know, theoretical, hypothetical, spiritual, wooey story. Mm-hmm. It is practically like, I think that this is a good way of being in the world, a good way of interacting with others, a source of comfort and help that I can provide. I love that. Mm-hmm. And I do think it's easier to be, you know, a secular Christian like I am, which is quite an oxymoron, mm-hmm. It, it, it's much easier in Europe, I think, than it is in America because it's, it's honestly yeah. quite common in Europe. Like I read an article about the Protestant church in the Netherlands. One in six of their priests are confessed agnostic or atheist. Hmm. Wow. Whereas here you lose your job, yeah. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you have to keep the, you know, any kind of doubts you have, any questions, you have to keep them squashed down hard in order to basically maintain your, you know, your job and... And, and your job, I think, also half the time as a, as a pastor or is protecting the patch, you know, like you're the CEO <laughs> of this thing too. So if you fall apart, the whole thing falls apart. It's just, it's a deck of cards that is built. It's ripe for deconstruction, in my opinion. Yeah. yeah and every time I publish something controversial, I do get a lot of messages from people saying that I am voicing what they secretly think, but daren't speak mm. out loud. And again, that's probably an autism thing. You know, I'm impulsive. I don't think about the consequences. I just speak my mind and see what happens. I love it. <laughs> I love that so much. And especially in this realm, like what an incredible, what an incredible tool that is for you as a leader and a teacher in in this this over censored, especially I think American Christianity. Like there's just such fear and so much shame thrown at anyone who 
speaks doubt or fear aloud or or asks a question aloud, like so much shame and just that. That's just such a beautiful interplay of those pieces. Um, what is your relationship with your book now as you have gone through this sort of deconstruction? Like I, I've talked to a lot of, I mean, what we do is we talk to people who've deconstructed and, and who have a lot of public work out there from the time where they were sort of more wrapped up in, in their more fundamental beliefs. Um, do you have to, do you have to still like do readings and engage with it and promote it? And, and how do you feel? How do you feel about all of that? I haven't done any like, active events around it really since I went to university. Yeah. I feel like, you know, it's an important part of my journey and my development. Mm. I do cringe slightly because, you know, again, with Northern Ireland being very Christian, I was able to go into loads of, you know, state funded schools and essentially sell this book to kids. So I do feel a little bit embarrassed that I essentially sold them religious propaganda, but I hope they enjoyed the story anyway. <laughs> right. Sure. What I loved, I loved what Jennifer Knapp said. We, we had Jennifer Knapp on and, you know, obviously she, she has, a, she was a very popular Christian musician over here and she's gone through this whole very public deconstruction and coming out. Um, but she said, you know, everything that is out there was, was true for her was where she was at that moment in time. And it, she had to be there to get to where she is now. So those there is someone else out there who isn't where she is now, who is at that place where she was when she was writing that. And maybe it becomes that same brick, that same piece in their story that it was in hers, that we're all just walking this journey and you need, you know, resources at a, at a different time. And I loved that because I think I've often thought of my older work as being something that would like steer people off of the path that I wanted them to go down. <laughs> But I loved the idea that maybe like it's just another piece in them continuing on the same trajectory that I followed after writing it. Yeah. And, and I've had like unfortunate incidents when people have dug up something I wrote like seven years ago when I was 15 and, right. you know, tried to use it as, <laughs> as ammunition against me. But I mean, that's just where I was at the time. It's not where I am now. Right. <laughs> well, and God, and you're so young too. So like when I'm talking about my old work, like I was at least 25, 26, 28 when I was writing these things. But I am incredibly grateful that the internet was not around in the way that it is now when I was 15, because I would have, I would have, uh, well, there would be a lot more for me to have to chase down. <laughs> yeah. You know, you know, the, the memory function on Facebook, like it tells you what mm -hmm. you were doing three years ago. Sometimes I look at that and I just despair. <laughs> <laughs> you, start, you start praying and interceding for your old self <laughs> it is such an interesting thing like your generation I think is really the sort of the first that's growing up with because everyone I mean that's just it is so profoundly normal to be going through incredible change for your yeah. teenage and early 20s like that's that's what we do as humans it's literally what your brain is doing is developing its full sense of identity and to have a record of that is really interesting. I have my journals, you know, but they're mine and I don't have to show them to anyone. <laughs> and, um, I think it's really fascinating uh, just to have that, have Facebook remind you of that and have that out there. That's got to be, that's got to be a wild ride. Yeah, well, at least it shows how far I've come. 
Right. <laughs> At least you can track your progress. <laughs> oh, that's good. And uh, yeah, but it is it is interesting. I wonder, I've got an eight-year-old daughter and I'm like, she's going to be accountable for everything she ever says mm. as soon as she starts saying things publicly. Like they're there. They're there from here on out. And it's interesting to see what that will do culturally. If at some point we're going to get to the point where we're like, okay, we have to stop holding people accountable for anything they said before they were. 18, you know, like you're off the hook. Or anything you said two years ago. Like, right. I, I love the fact that on your website, you know, both the book and then articles about how progressive Christianity and autism play together. So, can people can actually kind of see both of those things. And I think when we hold uh, other people accountable to just staying the same all of the time, we're not letting people just be who they are in the moment and letting them evolve. Like, I mean, for me as a progressive, one of my core beliefs is that you're moving forward. You know, mm-hmm. is that linear? It doesn't mean you're always like onward, upwards, ever onward rising, but you are kind of changing and evolving. Um, and I think, you know, what I said two years ago would be quite different what I said today. And then two years from now will also be different. And I think we need, for me, people of faith and people of spirituality is just learning to hold all those things a lot looser than we currently hold them. Yeah normalize changing your mind yeah and and if i've changed this much in like five years i i'm sure i'll change so much more like my father jokingly said we're waiting for my muslim phase next so (laughs) (laughs) i love it but isn't that wonderful i think there's something beautiful about that the ability to hold things loosely and to and to say as much as i miss being sure i also love knowing that I'm probably going to believe something totally different five years from now than I do right now and that I'm less worried about having the right answer now than I am about asking the right questions and being comfortable asking the right questions. It makes every conversation more fun. Yep. Knowing that I don't have to save anyone from (laughs) the fires of hell. (laughs) It's nice. Um, so you've also, Aaron, I was reading something uh, that you wrote where you were talking about how you feel like in the, the progressive Christian space, there's been a little more space for for you and the way that you identify and the, the way that you sort of practice Christianity. What are the things that make you feel seen in religious community or in conversations around spirituality? I love reading books by theologians who think similar to me. So I mentioned Spong before. He's probably the most famous. Um, in Scotland, there's a guy called Richard Holloway. and I, He's probably mm-hmm. my favourite theologian ever. Mm-hmm. You know, he writes from a similar perspective to me that Christianity may or may not be supernaturally true, but it's still very useful for the current day. Um, who else? Don Cupid, the English theologian, he... He also has very interesting books. But yeah, reading things like that makes me feel, you know, I'm not alone. There, mm. there are other heretics out there and many of them mm. manage to still be employed by the church, which is remarkable. Um, <laughs> We're okay. We have cookies. <laughs> being places where I don't feel afraid to speak my mind, mm. you know, in the, the church I go to right now, most of them are well aware how heretical I am and they don't necessarily agree with me, but they also don't try to change me. They just accept mm. me, welcome me, and we're good mm. friends. <laughs> Not scandalized by it. And... I'm sure they've heard way worse, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's awesome. 
So, well, normally we ask like what spiritual practices, and this might just be redundant because it might just be that, you know, reading books and uh, that sort of thing is, is the same thing for you, but what spiritual practices are working for you right now? Like what, what is working? Um, so I still do the day, the daily offices, which in Anglican speak, that's just, you know, the morning and evening prayer liturgies, but mm. during lockdown, I did them on Zoom with some other people and that's still ongoing. And I, I find that really helpful. So it's not even so much about the words themselves, even though they're they're nice. It's <laughs> coming together with other people and doing this activity together. I think that's the most important thing for me. And yes, I still go to church, um, quite a high church tradition, you know, smells and bells and all that stuff no i love that oh i want everything to smell good that's that's lovely it's funny because the church i grew up in like loathed kind of the traditions with smells and bells Mm. that would rail against them and so the first time i experienced that was i think in an anglican church on fifth avenue in new york and i was immediately just it was like a love affair like it was the first time i heard liturgy out loud and i think one of the phrases was, you know, God, we worship you in stone and wood. And I was just, like, I, I was swoony about it because mm-hmm. I'm like realizing that that these temples that we build are in themselves this homage to, you know, a, a creator or a, a divine imagination greater than ours. And that's just, you know, they're beautiful. I mean, it's Fifth Avenue. The, the place is, is stunning. And yet it's still nothing like the Colorado mountains at sunset. You know, <laughs> like it, it's, mm-hmm. it's pitiful, you know. It's that kind of tiny attempt to sort of encapsulate some of our own beauty in that and be part of the story. And yeah, I, I love that. I fell in love with the Anglican liturgy uh, for for many years uh, while I was kind of working at church in Brooklyn because the, the words themselves are so divine. Like they just, they, they feel good running out of your mouth. And it, it always pained me when people would uh, do the liturgy in a way that they felt like they could win it, like it had to be super accurate. And so it was very dry, you know, and kind of read with, with little emotion. I'm like, but these words are so gorgeous. Like they, they should kind of, they should excite us. They should move us. It's a very Enneagram four speech that you're making. Oh, I know. I know. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And it might be entirely different with you, Aaron, but for me, it was very romantic. The kind of the, the liturgy itself was so stunning. I know, I love it. it. It's honestly, it's like an art form, which isn't a bad yeah. thing. Uh, and the music's beautiful, although sadly at the moment we don't have choirs because COVID. Mm. But, sure. Yeah. And community, that is... So whenever people ask me about my relationship with God, my standard answer usually is, well, the Bible says, you know, well, God is love. It also says Christ is all and is in all. So therefore, mm-hmm. by relating to other people and loving other people, that is as close as I'm going to get to a relationship with God mm-hmm. for now. And you know, that's, that's enough for me. I, yeah. I enjoy it. <laughs> God is a flash mob. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I love that though. I think that that's such a, I mean, again, coming back to this idea of a, a practical faith that you can actually live like that, that is a loving relationship that I can live. You know, that's a loving relationship that I can touch and mm. hold and interact with at well you know, COVID permitting. Um, and uh, it gives us something to do as opposed to this sort of, I grew up in a very like bodily detached, like yeah. intellectual and emotional. And that's it. There is no other. It is how you think about God and how you feel about God in your heart. Yep. 
but you know, so smells. I'm like, oh, you got to smell things. It's very exciting. <laughs> um, <laughs> but it's any any sort of other sensory stuff was just sort of divorced from any sort of significance in that. And so just this, uh, just that, I think there's something so goddamn healthy in yeah. that return to like, no, my relationship with God is my relationship with you and is my relationship with the world around me and the experience that I'm having here. I think what's really intriguing is, is kind of how evangelical Christians took out communion. Like in most yeah. big box evangelical churches, they how they would do it or they do it like once a quarter or something mm. you know and I, I whereas i think in the community we're a part of which is super deconstructed and super progressive we do communion every sunday because there's something about those like bodily physical elements you know and it's still a, a, a kind of a tradition that when we're in person would really move me to see everyone in the room kids dogs everyone limping or jumping or running to the table and and the reminder uh, that our leaders Kate and Colby give is just that you are loved or you're a child of God, or it, it's just something very simple. It's, it's not, you know, I mean, it, it is mirroring that body of Christ broken for you, but it's, that's not what it is. It's not some kind of supernatural way that this wafer becomes the body of Jesus. Because <laughs> <ew. laughs> cause, yeah, because ew, but it, but it is this reminder that you're having a bodily experience like he, right here, right now, like you're, it's all in all there in front of you. I think that's that's really beautiful, and I, I love hearing your story about how that's that's helpful for you to be kind of in in your body, in your person, because because as you said, you know, you can't make sense of this other way that many of us have been taught to relate to religion, which is just to do it with our mind and to think our way through this and put all this other meaning on it. Yeah, and I also think religion does community in a way that's very hard to match. Um, in any other field. So, you know, for example, when I came here to Scotland to study, I was able to pretty much instantly find friends by just walking mm. into a church and being welcome. There's very few places where where you can do that. And I think that is yeah. definitely a big strength of well, all forms of religion. Yeah, absolutely. And that those rhythms are just built in. Like there is a, you can you can show up and there is sort of a, prescribed you, you don't have to guess I don't think at, at how to figure out friendship at churches it's like sign up for this meal train and come over here and do this and show up for this thing and you're like okay I can do these things I know how I can I can connect with people when I'm given these these specific instructions and I think I think that you're absolutely right I think that that is unique the fact that I am still friends with people from the fundamentalist church or the charismatic church or the many churches mm. I have been to proves that they were genuine <laughs> friendships because even though mm. I'm a heretic in their eyes, they still like me, I hope. They act yeah. like they like me. <laughs> I love that. I feel like you got some really good ones in that and that's great. Well, Erin, I think that you're absolutely delightful and I would love to know if there's anything else that you would want to say to anybody who, you know, like you is going through deconstruction has just searched up all the podcasts in the world that exist on on the thing and is is trying to make some sense of what's going on where where have you landed on the other side of that that you would like them to know it gets better definitely mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> there was a time when oh goodness it was awful i felt like i felt like the minute that i admitted i didn't believe in a supernatural god i thought right that's it that's the end of my life as i know it but yeah Actually, 
it's not that bad and things have actually gotten better. I I wasn't rejected. I I wasn't kicked out of university. All of the catastrophizing things didn't happen. And hmm. And you're still here. I'm still here. <laughs> and I really want to make that into a t-shirt. I want a heathen t-shirt that just is like heresy. It's actually not that bad, you know. Oh, <laughs> I, I own the word heretic. I love it. I, I happily call myself a heretic. <laughs> yep. Well, I mean, we put heathen on top of our faces and put it on the internet, so we're with you on that. But it is, and I think that you know, the people who have worn that label of heresy are—it's a pretty good crew full of prophets and revolutionaries yep. and rebel rousers yep. and change makers. So here, here, I, I happily happily applaud your use of it yep i wandered through uh into richard Rowland into franciscan catholicism for a while it was sort of my fascination and then realized that a large part of catholics thought they were heretics and i'm just like oh really wow fun <laughs> <laughs> neat and why oh good i yeah. like that about a person it's <laughs> fascinating Oh, well, Aaron, thank you so, so much for being willing to uh, brave the technology across the ocean today and, and chat with us. Maybe I'm the only one who's afraid of those things, but <laughs> um, where, where can people find you out in the world? What work are you doing that you would want to point people to or, or things you'd like them to read? My website is erinburnettauthor.co.uk. The reason why I had to specify author is that there is a CNN newsreader called Erin Burnett. Yes. So uh -huh. if you Google my name, it will only be her. You have to specify author. <laughs> yeah. I have a televangelist wife who shares my oh, name. Grief. She, she, well, here's where I become a real heathen. She died a couple of years ago and I was like, finally, because, <laughs> which is terrible. <laughs> I was very tired of being responsible for things she said on the internet. And um, yeah, I'm sure, I'm sure she's in a better place. So. Maybe that helps my case because if people Google me to try and find like ammunition against me, all they find is CNN. Yeah, That's right. There amazing. you go. Perfect. It's not so bad. Uh, all right. Well, everybody go and read Aaron's work. It's brilliant and wonderful. And Aaron, thank you. Thank you. Thank you for coming on to talk with us today. Thank you for having me. Yeah, of course. Thanks for helping us break Ben in on his first, uh, his first go here. <laughs>